You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Just a couple quick things together before we dive into God's Word. The first is this. As you look around this auditorium, it's pretty full. I mean, usually it's even more full than this. Thankfully, there's still some chairs, twos and threes here and there. And we're really, really glad that you're with us here this morning. But you've heard us make this appeal before, and I'm going to make it again. Last week, we were out of parking entirely. Some of you had to park along the fire lanes here, and there were maybe three, four, five seats left left in the auditorium. And we just want to, again, appeal to you that if there's any way that you would consider getting up a little earlier, okay, a lot earlier, and coming to our 8 o'clock service, or sleeping in longer, and coming to our 11.30 service, we would greatly appreciate that. Those services are growing as well, I'm happy to tell you, but there's still lots of room in there, and we want to make as much room as possible available in this service, because when studies show that when people walk into a room, and that room is 80% full, to them, they perceive that it is full and that there's no room for them. And we don't want folks to be turned away who are seeking the Lord and wanting to get back in the church or what have you. So if it's possible for you to shift, we're going to ask that you do so. We get that that doesn't always work, and that's fine. We're just glad you're here. But we did want to throw that out to you um, for you to consider, okay? So there's that. And then secondly, I wanted to let you know that one of the things we've been talking about throughout this series is as we've had you text your questions to us or email your questions to us, which again, those numbers are on your sermon notes, We've been saying at the end of the series we were going to do a Q&A time on November 30th and just circle back around to any questions we weren't able to address. Well, you are asking really good questions, but what we're finding is we're able to follow those questions up individually, and there really aren't enough questions to merit giving an entire worship service to a Q&A time on the 30th. So instead, in place of that, we are going to do another sermon, and we're going to be doing something that really bridges between this series and our Songs of Christmas series that will start in December. So do continue to text your questions and emails to us. We will follow up on those individually. Um, Put your name on there if you do want a response from us and and we make a commitment to you that we will catch up to you but that's what we're going to be doing on the 30th and then one last thing i need to let you know about and this is some very hard very sad news but the family wanted me to tell you Uh, many of you uh, know um, the sanders family bryant and jennifer sanders on thursday morning um their uh 18 year old son um, was killed in an auto accident in a head-on collision incredibly tragic and if it wasn't hard enough, yesterday would have been his 19th birthday. So just just a heart-wrenching, heart-wrenching thing. And we want to let you know two things. The first is that the service for their son Kyle will be next Saturday at 11 o'clock at Greater Gresham Church. Um, that's where Kyle was involved as a young adult. And secondly, many of you have been asking what you can do, how you can help. We are going to be providing meals for the family. There's other folks taking care of that for now, but we plan on swooping in and picking up where that leaves off here in another week or two. Um, Just uh, let our information counter know or let one of us as a staff member know that you'd like to be part of that meals team that we have, and we'll we'll get you um, to be a part of that. But I'd like to pray for them and uh, pray for their family. So would you join me in doing that? Jesus, it's just hard to wrap our our hearts and minds around something like this because it's so tragic. 
and, and it is another reminder that we live in a broken world where things like this that should have never happened do happen. And Jesus, we thank you, though, that you are coming to this broken world. You have come to this broken world to redeem it, to restore it to what you always intended. And Lord, we thank you that there is hope in Jesus Christ. And so we pray that the peace that passes all understanding that you promise for your children would be experienced by the entire Sanders family. Lord, that as they grieve and as they hurt, they would be reminded of the truth and reality of your goodness, that you have not left them, and Lord, that you walk with them. And Lord, we pray that they would feel our prayers, that they would know their church family loves them and is standing beside them. But Lord, we pray too, more importantly, that they would know and see and sense your presence and that you are with them. And Lord, I know that in a church our size, there are other families that have walked this road or have experienced other heartaches um, with kids. And, And Lord, we pray that you would be their strength as well. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I know that that is, boy, that's just very heavy and very hard. And I've spent a lot of time with this family in the last couple days. So I know that it's natural and necessary for our thoughts and hearts and prayers to be going to them. But I am going to ask you to deliberately shift gears here with me mentally and emotionally as we dive into this passage that we're going to look at here this morning. And really what I'd like to do is pick up where Gary Thomas kind of left off last week. Um, If you'll remember, Gary asked how many of us were dog Lovers, And I'd just like to see how many of you are dog people? Okay, that's good. And how many of you are cat people? Okay, and how many of you are people who don't care? You don't have to raise your hand, right? But there are a number of you who didn't, and that's okay too. But uh, years ago, I ran across something that I told myself, if I ever happened to preach a sermon on parenting, which is what this is going to be, I would read this story. Um, so if you're a cat lover, this is for you. If you're a dog lover, this is for you. If you don't care, this is for you. So here we go. It's called the cat years. I just realized that while children are dogs, loyal and affectionate, teenagers are cats. (laughs) It's so easy to be a dog owner. You feed it, train it, boss it around. It puts its head on your knee and gazes at you as if you are a Rembrandt painting. It bounds indoors with enthusiasm when you call it. But then around age 13, your adoring little puppy turns into a big old cat. When you tell it to come inside, it looks amazed, as if wondering who died and made you the emperor. (laughs) Instead of dogging your footsteps, it disappears. You won't see it again until it gets hungry. And then it pauses on its sprint through the kitchen long enough to turn its nose at up whatever you're serving, right? So when you reach out to ruffle its head in that old affectionate gesture, it twists away from you, and then it gives you a blank stare as if trying to remember where it has even seen you before. (laughs) You, not realizing that your dog is now a cat, think something must be desperately wrong with it. It seems so antisocial, so distant, sort of depressed. It won't even go on family outings. I'm sure none of this has ever happened in your families, right? Since you're the one who raised it, taught it to fetch and stay and sit on command, you assume then that maybe you did something wrong. Flooded with guilt and fear, you redouble your efforts to make your pet behave. Only now you're dealing with a cat. So everything that worked before now produces the opposite of the desired result. Call it, it runs away. Tell it to sit, it jumps on the counter. The more you go toward it, wringing your hands, the more it moves away. Instead of continuing to act like a dog owner, you can learn to behave like a cat owner. 
Put a dish of food near the door and it will come to you. But remember that a cat needs our help and our affection too. So sit still and it will come, seeking the warm, comforting lap it is not entirely forgotten. Be sure to open the door for it. And one day, your grown-up child will walk into the kitchen, give you a big kiss and say, you have been on your feet all day. Let me get those dishes for you. Ah, there it is. Everybody on three. One, two, three. Ah. And then you realize that your cat is a dog again. Now, in fairness, some are still waiting for that dishes part, right? But there it is, right? I will never forget bringing our oldest child home when she was a baby, and she just turned 19 yesterday. But 19 years ago, I remember bringing her home and thinking, what in the world do we do now, right? I have um, a cousin. Her name is Stephanie, and she's, she's in this service. She and her husband, Nick, have just had their first baby, and they're going to be awesome parents. It was a joy to watch them with their cute little girl who they brought home just last week. And as I was sitting there watching them in wonder, you know, holding their little girl, who they named Grace, by the way. I don't understand why they didn't name her Jay, but they did name her Grace after our church, so that's, you know, that's good. No, actually not, but her name is Grace. And I remember just watching them last week with Grace, and it took me back to when we were holding our babies in our arms, thinking, now we've got to raise this, this little life. How in the world do you do that? And so as we come to this point in our series on the modern family where we talk about parenting, a couple things to just get out on the table. First, there's no way we can comprehensively talk about what parenting truly entails in just 35 minutes. And because of that, honestly, this sermon was a little intimidating for me because I am not the perfect parent, nor do I want to stand before you and say, oh, just do everything the way I've done it and it'll work out great. That's not what I'm saying this morning. And there are a number of parents here who I so greatly respect and admire and look up to who I think would be better to to talk about parenting. But what we are going to do is look at what God's word has to say because there are some timeless principles about parenting that all of us can glean from. And some of you are thinking, okay, well, I'm not a parent, I'm a grandparent. This will speak to you. Some of you are thinking, I'm not a parent or a grandparent, so how is this going to relate to me? This does relate to you because all of you are kids. No matter your age, 8 or 80, you're someone's kid. And this passage will speak to you as well. So if you have a Bible, please open to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We are going to dive into this together. And I think you're going to find, like me, you never dreamed that four verses would have so much practical, applicational truth for your life and for mine. It's just been amazing to me to just dig deeper into this passage. So four short verses, I'm going to read them to you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. That's the fifth commandment, by the way. So that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. We're going to start with the final verse, the one up on the the screen there, and work our way back up through this passage. So there's something here for fathers, and I think that is significant, that the Apostle Paul, in writing what is commonly known as the household codes, how should husbands and wives relate to one another in the verses that precede this, how do families work in the verses we're looking at, he singles out fathers. 
I think there's a couple reasons behind that. First, it was understood and assumed that both fathers and mothers parented and helped raise their kids. But something has happened in our culture about 150 years ago called the Industrial Revolution. And up to that point, mothers and fathers very much co-parented their kids in that both of them were usually around a lot of the time. Fathers had a vocation. Oftentimes, uh, especially their sons, would apprentice with those fathers. And oftentimes that was on the farm. I mean, mom and dad were both right there. But when the Industrial Revolution happened about 150 years ago, then all of a sudden occupations and vocations were developed that demanded that dad leave the home. And so dad would be gone from the home at a job, at work, and then mother or the mom would be the one who would be assuming a lot of the parenting. So fathers, this is a message to you and me that we are co-parents. It is not just the mother's job to parent and raise and disciple the kids. It's yours as well. In fact, this and other passages underscore the reality that fathers, you have a special responsibility in parenting your kids. You are the spiritual leader of the home. This is not about capability. This does not mean that moms are not also to disciple their kids. This is about responsibility. Fathers, it is your job to make sure that your kids are being raised in the instruction of the Lord. And when I first read this passage and when I was in um, our young years of holding these little babies thinking, how in the world am I going to do this? Because I didn't come from a Christian family. I have nothing to fall back on for this besides God's word. I mean, I just, I don't know how to do this. And some of you dads are feeling like that or have felt like that and can identify with that. And that's okay. That's, that's a normal, understandable response. But it does bring back some keys that I just want to quickly look at as we move our way through this passage. And the first is this. Dads, you are spiritually responsible to be the spiritual leaders of your home, which means you need to own that. Whether you think you know how to do it or not is not a license to pass on this or to assume that your wife is going to be the one to pick this up. You are the one who has to take responsibility to do this and to figure it out. And honestly, practically for me, that has come down to really one word that I use to help me remember my responsibilities as a dad in my family. And that's to initiate. And actually, this word is before me all the time in all my relationships. It is fundamental to me being the type of husband that God calls me to be with my wife? Am I speaking her love language? Am I meeting her needs? Am I loving her as Christ loves the church? Those things don't happen passively. They don't just happen. You have to initiate and take responsibility and make sure those things happen. The same is true for parenting. Now, in Christian circles, unfortunately, sometimes spiritual leadership in a family, especially for dads who are stepping forward and trying to take responsibility and initiate being a spiritual leader, gets reduced down to you must have a Bible study every evening with your Bible open, your children eagerly gathered around the table to hear the wisdom that will fall from your lips out of God's word so they can apply it to their lives. Is that part of spiritual leadership? Well, the part about you know, having your Bible open and, and instructing your kids. Yeah, it's a part of it. And there were seasons in our life where we did just that, where we had these times of devotion with our kids. It wasn't always with the Bible. Oftentimes it was with other spiritual Christian books that taught biblical values. But try doing that with teenagers. 
We have a young adult and two teenagers under our roof now. They're never around. So how do you sit down and have this established devotional time? Well, you know what? There are seasons and stages for everything, and that is a part of spiritual leadership, dads, but that's not the only way you lead, and I would advocate there are other ways that you lead. And this is one of them. Talk about Jesus. I think this is at the heart of spiritual leadership is you talk to your kids about what you are learning from the word of God. What prayers are you seeing answered in your lives? What is the brokenness, the sin that the Lord has revealed in your life that you're trying to steer into? One of the things that I'm grateful that we've created in the environment of our home is that we still have ongoing spiritual conversations with our kids because that's the atmosphere we've cultivated. We talk about, you know, what is the message in that movie that we just saw that was so funny but so inappropriate in places? What was wrong with that, right? But where, what does Scripture have to say about that? And is, are the values that are being propagated and preached in what you're watching there and what we watched, is that really the life God calls us to? Constantly talking about that stuff. But that takes intentionality. That takes initiation. But that's one of the keys to spiritual leadership. And finally, man, if you don't know what to do, learn from others. I am still learning and gleaning from wise parents around me and wise men around me who have led their families and are leading their families wisely and well. I meet weekly with one of our elders and we hold each other accountable to these things, but I, I learn things from him that I'm applying to my parenting. You know, it comes down to this D word that you should be hearing quite often here at Grace and that you read about in God's word, and that is discipleship. You learn from someone else who's gone before you. If you don't know how to lead spiritually, dads, man, look around. This church is full of dads who take this very seriously and do it wisely and well. Go find one of them who you respect and ask them to teach you what they're doing. It's, it's that easy. But, but learn from others. And this passage talks to all of us. So I'm going to move us along. But dads, I, just, I had to take that opportunity to speak um, from this passage into our lives. But he goes on to say, fathers, dads, do not exasperate your children. In other translations, this can also be translated as do not provoke your children to anger. Now, why would he tell fathers in particular to not provoke your children to anger? Because fathers uniquely can provoke their children to anger. Right? We can, we can do that. So how do we do that? Well, let's look at what he says here. Instead of doing that, bring them up, which implies a process, a gradual process. Because really, the end game for all of us who are parents is that we are trying to raise our kids to someday be independent, fully functional, Jesus-worshiping adults. Amen? That's what we're trying to do. But we can go to extremes with that. One extreme is that we can lose sight of that and we make our kids too dependent. And we somehow lose sight of the goal that our job is to make them more like Jesus and to call them to trust and love Jesus and to follow Jesus and to live their lives for Jesus and to do that as fully functional independent adults and we sometimes lose sight of that and because we don't want to endanger relationship or inject tension or disappoint our kids they, we don't parent them and, and we make them dependent we don't set boundaries we don't set expectations and then enforce them or we go to the other extreme and we give them their independence too early we give them too much responsibility too much freedom and you know what happens to kids who are too dependent 
and who someday become adults or who get their freedom too early and their independence too early and prematurely. Do you know what those two kids inevitably become? Angry. They can become very angry. And this was vividly illustrated to me when I was in college. My second year of college, I got hired to be a resident assistant in one of our residence halls. So now me and two other ladies, we were responsible to be resource people for 90 men and women who lived in our residence hall. And I learned shortly after stepping into that role that we weren't there to be resources. We were there to reparent about 90 people because there were young adults who were too dependent on their mom and dad and did not know how to function with the newfound freedom they had. Or there were young adults who were taking that freedom and who had been granted that freedom too early in their life and were train wrecking their lives. And we'd have situations like this guy who would come to my door and knock on my door at 3 a.m., like three or four times a week, saying, hey, dude, I left my keys in my room. I'm locked out. Can you come let me in? Well, I did for the first however many times. And finally, I said, dude, I am not your dad. You know, I am not going to keep unlocking the door for you because you don't have the responsibility to remember your keys. The next time you lock yourself out of your room, you will sleep outside your room. Don't come wake me up. But this was a guy who had never been given any boundaries, any expectations, any responsibility. And I had a residence hall full of people like that. It It was amazing to me. And not that I had my act completely together either, but I sure saw the truths of what's being talked about here in this passage. These were folks who had not been brought up, and they had not been trained. This is an action word. This is what you do with your kids. It literally means to discipline to hold them accountable, to set boundaries, to hold their feet to the fire, and yes, when necessary, to punish and discipline them. And let's talk about the extremes of this. There are those kids who who have no boundaries. They, They haven't been given expectations. They've largely raised themselves. Or you have those kids who um, have been harshly parented. I mean, yes, expectations were delivered, and man, you better live up to those expectations, and if you don't, there is no grace for you. There is harshness and criticism, and do you know what what you you call kids who have been raised to both of those extremes? Angry, angry kids. More often than not. He goes on to say they need to be trained and they need to be instructed. This is what you tell your kids, what you say to them. And again, we can go to extremes here. Again, we have those parents who, much like what we just talked about, they don't set boundaries or expectations. They don't really take the time or the initiative or the responsibility to teach their kids, and their kids grow up and they're not functional adults. Or we have those parents who love to lecture and who love to give too much instruction. And again, what do both those extremes produce? Angry kids. So we've spent an awful lot of time talking about what not to do, right? So let's spend some time talking about some of the things we can do. And with all this being said, when it comes to parenting, I wish that we could say, you do this, don't do that, and your kids will grow up loving Jesus, respecting and honoring you, and being who you've always wanted them to be. You can do everything absolutely the best way possible and your kids can choose to reject it reject you walk away from the lord walk away from you so unfortunately there are no guarantees with this and as a pastor i've seen this i've seen incredibly wonderful loving gracious wise 
excellent parents who have had kids go off the deep end and the kids have never come back and it has really little to do with what the parents did or didn't do. So aren't you glad you came to church today for that encouragement, right? But let's talk about some of the things that can be helpful. And this is just some. And these are some things that Jamie and I have found to be really helpful in raising our kids. And I hope they're helpful to you. These are found in the resources that are listed at the bottom of your sermon notes. But this is one of the realities. One of the ways that helps us avoid these extremes we've talked about is to equip your kids with choices. And that book at the bottom of your sermon notes, Love and Logic, talks a lot about this. In my family, my family of origin growing up, one of the battlegrounds for us was wearing a coat. Does that ever happen in your family with your kids or grandkids, or did that ever happen with you? I mean, it was always this battleground with my parents. You know, we live in the Northwest, it rains, you wear a coat. Well, as a kid, I really didn't want to wear a coat. And there were these battles, and I swore to myself, and maybe you've done this as a parent too, I will never fight that battle with my kids. Man, my kids don't ever want to wear a coat. That's going to be great. I'm never going to buy them a coat because we're not going to fight over that. All my kids own coats, and we have fought over that. And one of the things that we have learned and that my gracious wise wife has helped me understand when our kids were young was instead of fighting over do they wear a coat or not wear a coat, we give them choices in that process. And they're graduated choices. So when they were really little guys, it wasn't, do you want to wear a coat or not wear a coat? It was, what color coat would you like to wear? Do you want to wear the red one or the blue one? I don't want to wear a coat. I understand, but what coat would you like to wear? The red one or the blue one? I'll wear the blue one. Okay, great. But you equipped kids with a series of choices as they get older, right? And then, of course, there's that age-old parental wisdom, pick your battles, right? Do you really want to die on the hill that your 18-year-old kid wears a coat? Actually, I do because it happened to me, so they're going to do it, right? Which isn't good thinking. But you look to give your kids choices. But also, here's another tool, and that's this. You teach them options thinking. And again, we started this very young with our kids. Say one of our kids has lost their toy, and they can't find it, and they're upset. After giving them some space, you know, to process that, motions settle down a little bit, sitting down with them and saying, okay, let's talk about this. Do you want to hear what some kids do? In your situation? Yeah. What do some kids do? Well, some kids choose to do nothing. How would that work? Well, bad. Well, some kids choose to throw a temper tantrum. How would that work? Well, bad. Well, some kids choose to play with another toy. How would that work? Well, bad. I want that toy. Well, some kids choose to ask for help in fighting their toy. How do you think that would work? Good. Daddy, will you help me find my toy? Sure. I'll help you find your toy. And you very deliberately start with the worst choices first and graduate to better choices. And sometimes we would walk through that process and they'd still say, bad, and we'd say, okay, well, let me know how that works out for you. <laughs> but, but it is teaching your kids options thinking. And, and like many parents, there are things I wish I could, do, could have done differently with, with our kids now that we're really getting to the end of seeing where things are and them becoming functional adults. And... We haven't always done things perfectly, but all of our kids, I'm happy to say, are options thinkers because they've been consistently given choices through their parenting, and they're better options thinkers than I am because that was a deliberate tool that we tried to use with them. And finally, this. It's called A Wise Appeal, and this is captured in the Taransky book at the bottom of your notes. It's too long of a title for me to recite it to you. But... With this, this is the idea that you give your kids a voice 
in the parenting that you do with them. And it goes something like this. Say you have a kid who's playing a video game and it's time for bed. They want to go to bed. No, rather, you want them to go to bed. They don't want to go to bed. They want to keep playing their video game. And so you say, hey, I, I would like you to quit your game, go get ready for bed. And this is what we taught our kids. It's the wise appeal. Dad, I understand that you want me to stop playing the game. So they're acknowledging what you've asked of them. However, I have a problem with that. Okay, here it comes. But appropriately, now you're teaching them assertiveness to appropriately ask for what they want. I would like to stay up 15 minutes longer to finish my game. Would that be okay? And the promise that we made our kids was that if they, in the heat of the moment, took the initiative to use a wise appeal, if it was all possible, we would say yes and honor their attempts to do this. So even when I really didn't want to, even when it felt like a battle I had to win, more often than not, I would say yes to honor this process. But the deal was we told them that if we use a wise appeal, rather, if you use a wise appeal with us, you have to be prepared to hear no because there are still going to be times that you hear no. And if you can't hear no, then we're just going to graduate straight to that. There will be no wise appeal. And they understood this even as little kids and used it. And I'll never forget one day coming home with our little kids. And at my previous church, I had been denied vacation because it just wasn't a good time for, for me to be gone. And I remember telling, you know, our kids and Jamie, hey, you know, we're going to need to shift our vacation a little bit. I'm not, I can't be gone. And I remember one of our daughters looking at me and said, well, Daddy, did you use a wise appeal? <laughs> I said, well, sweetheart, no, actually I didn't. So I went back to my boss and I used a wise appeal. I understand you don't want me to be gone on vacation here, but I have a problem with that because we would like to do this and would it be possible to do this? And he said, yes. <laughs> so it works on big kids too, right? <laughs> Not just little kids. But again, some tools to help avoid the extremes that scripture has wisely warned us about. But now we, uh, we need to really focus in on what's the heart of of where these tools come from. Again, the end game here, the end goal is to bring our children up by preparing them for independence. That's what parenting is. Grandparents, you have a very key role to help play in this as well. And we do that by training and instructing them in the Lord. So that's parents. That brings us to kids. Children, obey your parents. This word for children is young kids. Now, there's no age given here, so this is kind of nebulous, but this, these, this is kids. Obey your parents. And there's something there that I think is a struggle, and that's this. We live in a culture that says, you define what's right. I define what's right. Who are you to tell me what you think is right? There is no absolute truth. There is no absolute authority. You get to figure out what's right for you and then follow through with that. But notice in this verse, kids are to obey their parents because this is right. Well, who says it's right? God does. Kids, when your parents ask you to do or not do something, when you obey them, you're also obeying Jesus. You're also obeying God because they are his designated authority to care for you, love you, and speak into your life. But that being said, parents and grandparents, this is very important too. And that is that you help kids, starting when they're little, understand why it is right to obey in the Lord. 
And let me give you a practical example of that. And by the way, this principle, this truth, really is captured in Right from Wrong by Josh McDowell. That's listed as a resource on one of your, book, one of your books at the bottom of the sermon notes. But it's this. Say that you're working with one of your little kids and you caught them in a lie. And so you're confronting this little kid and say, you know what? You shouldn't lie. And all kids go through the phase, right, of where they ask why. Remember, you did that. You probably don't remember that. You were too young. But your parents would tell you you did that. If you've had kids, you know they do that. Grandparents, you've seen this. But all kids go through this season of asking why. So imagine it's in this season that this happens. You shouldn't lie. Why? Well, because it's wrong. Why? Well, because it hurts other people. Why? Because God wants our best. Why? Because I said so. Why? Ah, boy. Because God said so. Why? Which is legit. Why? Why is lying wrong? Now understand this. This is very fundamental. It's true for all kids, including you and me. When God tells us to do something or not to do something in his word, inevitably it goes back to who he is. All his commands are rooted in his character and in his being. The reason we don't lie is because God does not lie. Or to put it more positively, the reason we do not lie is because God is truth. God tells the truth. You can do this with every single commandment in the Bible. It all goes back to the character of God, and it is fundamentally important that we help our kids understand as we parent them and grandparent them that the reason we do or don't do things always goes back to who God is. It's always rooted in his character. That's why it's called absolute truth. That's why it's true for all people in all places, in all contexts, in all cultures, because it's rooted in the character of God. And that book, Right from Wrong, will give you practical tools on how to implement this in your training and instruction of your kids. So, for kids, obey your parents in the Lord. Standing behind your parents is the Lord. And when you obey them, you obey him. So now we graduate to all of us who are kids. Because do you realize a day will come when you are growing into adulthood when you will no longer obey your parents. In fact, it is imperative that when you become an adult, you stop obeying your parents. Because scripture assumes this. In Genesis 2.24 it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, unite to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Marriage is one of those examples where it is assumed you leave your family of origin and you start a new family. It is a rite of passage into adulthood. You're no longer a kid. You are an adult which therefore means you don't necessarily obey your parents. In fact, in most cases, you shouldn't. Because you answer to the Lord. You always have, but now they have released you to do that directly. But something you never stop doing as a kid, no matter how old you are, is honoring your parents. Honor is at the heart of obedience. We always, always, always honor our parents. And that's what Paul appeals to here. It is the fifth commandment out of Deuteronomy chapter 5. And what this looks like has a lot of different looks to it. 
but one of them is this. To honor your parents means you care for them. Scripture speaks directly to this. For instance, in 1 Timothy, where it says that we are to provide for the immediate needs of our relatives and of our parents, which means one of the practical, tangible ways you honor your parents is you, you, you care for them. You help provide for them in their old age. In a, in a culture that disregards and discards the elderly, believers should never do that. Now, how you care for your parents, that looks very different. I'm not saying you shouldn't, you should do a certain thing like that. You should always take them into your home. Or, I'm not saying that. There, there are many different ways you care for your parents, physically, emotionally, mentally. But the important thing is that we do do that because that's one of the ways you show them honor. Another way you show honor to your parents is you forgive them. Because the reality is, in our broken culture, in our broken world, and yes, in a world filled with broken parents, there are some of you who have been horribly wronged by your parents. They hurt you, they criticized you, they did not give you what you needed. They may have even abused you. And how in the world do you honor a parent who has hurt you so deeply, who you may not even have any relationship with? And necessarily so, with the boundaries that you've had to draw. One of the ways that you honor them is you forgive them because when you do that you take away their power to control you and at the end of the day the very best of parents are broken my kids will have to sort through the brokenness in me and have to choose to forgive me for that because I'm not perfect I am a child of God who is being redeemed to be more like Jesus every day, but I'm still broken. And there are no perfect parents in this world. And last week I told you that I first met Gary Thomas about 15 years ago at a retreat when he came and spoke to our pastoral staff at my last church. And it was on that retreat, as I thought more about that, when I did some serious business with my own parents. This retreat was at the beach. I always hear God loudly at the beach. It's like his Holy Spirit just screams into my ear. I love going to the beach. It's one of the ways I connect with the Lord in my own walk with him. And I was at the beach sitting on this rock during one of our breaks where Gary was talking about these very things we're talking about here this morning and was saying, you know what, you need to do business with your past. And I remember thinking, you know what? So I have these little kids at home and one of the things I'm finding is that I get angry with them and sometimes I'm really harsh with them. And it's not proportional to what they're doing. In fact, it's not proportional or justified by anything. I just respond that, why do I do that? And as I thought about it, it's because I grew up in a home where, and understand this, I have an awesome dad. I love him. I respect him. I honor him. He was a fantastic dad, but he was also a broken dad. And you did not want to get my dad angry. And there were times that something would happen and he would be angry and he would be harsh. And I swore I would never be like that with my kids. And you know what happened? I was like that with my kids. And it wasn't until I realized I needed to forgive my dad for that that I could begin to do business with my own heart. And some of you might be thinking, well, this sounds like psycho, psycho babble, feel-good stuff. No, this is actually application of God's truth in your life and mine because the reality is 
there are probably a number of you who are looking for something from your parents that you are never going to get. And it drives you and it comes out in your own parenting or even your own grandparenting or even your other relationships. Some of you are still trying to please parents, maybe even parents who have passed away by, by what you say and what you do and what you're striving for and what you're trying to be. I have a friend who is an unbelievably successful person. He, he loves the Lord by, by the world standards. He's incredibly successful. He's, he's pretty wealthy. Um, he has a high degree of responsibility. He's a leader in the, in the company that he's involved in. He got his doctorate before he was 32 years old. He's highly educated, highly motivated, highly driven, and very broken. Because recently he confessed to me as he realized himself, Jay, I pursued that doctorate at such an early age. I pursued all those accolades. I pursued all this stuff. I pursued what everything that, that culture would say was a success because I'm still trying to please my dad. And you know what the irony is? My dad has told me over and over again, he loves me, I have his approval, and I'm still trying to get something from him that I will never, ever get. Because at the end of the day, this comes back to what we talked about last week and that Gary Traumas rightfully pointed out to us. Your greatest need is not to be loved by another human being. And some of you have got to stop looking for what you're never going to get from relationships in your life, including relationships with your parents. Because the reality is you are loved. Even with what you've received that's been incomplete from parents or other, other people in your life. Your greatest need is not to be loved. It is to learn to love others with the love that has been given to you through Jesus Christ. And some of you need to do business with what you're still trying to look for from your parents. Some of you are still trying to obey your parents and please your parents. And it has tied you into knots when really, at the end of the day, we all stand before a God who is the only one whose approval we truly need. Honor your parents, absolutely, at all times, in every way possible. But stop looking for something from your parents that you may never get, because you are loved. You have a God who looks at you in all your brokenness and instead of standing back away from you, shaking his head going, are you ever going to get it right? Your brokenness attracts his grace, draws him to you, and he says to you, what, do, what are we going to do about that? Do you want to keep living like that? Because you don't have to. I love you. You're not going to surprise me. You're not going to disappoint me. I know, I know you're broken. Yes, I know you're like that. So what are we going to do about it? How would you like to be redeemed? How would you like to have hope? How would you like to be restored to the way I intended you to be? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what's represented in these communion elements before you. So as our elders and ministry staff come forward to, to distribute these elements to you, and I'm going to ask you, remind yourself again of what the gospel is, that Jesus Christ, seeing you and me in our brokenness, still comes to us, sacrifices himself so that he can exchange our brokenness for his righteousness and his power for right living through his Holy Spirit. That's, that's what's represented in these elements. You have a heavenly Father who loves you. 
And maybe there are some of you here who, man, you're religious, obviously, because you're here, right? You read your Bible, you do good things, you try to be a good person, but God is not interested in your resume. He's interested in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And if there's never been a defining moment where you've invited Jesus into your life, man, you need to do that because you're missing out on the very things we're talking about here this morning. So as, as we pray, I'm gonna ask for those of you who maybe have never done this, that if this makes sense to you, you feel compelled to do this, that you would, you'd receive Jesus into your life and then come and take these communion elements and they'll truly mean something to you. And for all of us, as you come forward to receive these elements, please take them back to your seats and we'll, we'll celebrate communion together corporately as a church family in just a little while. But let me pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that despite my brokenness, despite the brokenness of every person here, we don't have to hide from you. We don't have to hide in shame and fear, but God, you call to us just like you did Adam and Eve. When they sinned and wronged you, you came looking for them. You called them by name. You invited them to come to you. You were the one who took the initiative to restore a relationship. Thank you that you've done that through Jesus. Thank you that that is what's represented here by these elements on this table, that the blood and body of our Lord Jesus Christ is the reason that we can stand before you clean and forgiven and whole and with the approval and the love of the only one who truly matters. So, Lord, I pray for anyone here who has never made this defining moment decision to receive you into their lives as their Lord and Savior, that right now they would say, Jesus, please come into my life. Thank you that you forgive me and that you love me and that you will never leave me. And now, church, Let us worship this amazing God together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.